You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the CEO and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the podcast. We are going to talk about the importance of work, incentive structures as we think about the United States of America, and we will all understand, despite our shortcomings, why this is the greatest country in the world to be poor, middle class, or rich. Phil Graham is joining us to talk about the book he co-authored with Robert Eklund and John Early titled The Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate. Senator Graham served six years in the U.S. House of Representatives and 18 years in the U.S. Senate, where he was chairman of the Banking Committee. Mr. Graham is a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He was vice chairman of UBS Investment Bank and is now vice chairman of Lone Star Funds. He taught economics at Texas A&M University and has published numerous articles and books. Senator Graham lives in Helotus, Texas. Senator Graham, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Cole. So I can make some assumptions, and just so you know, I love this book. I think your, your information, it's probably the most data-related book that we've done on the podcast ever, so I love the data, but what inspired you and, and Robert and John to you know, build this story together? Well, it really started when I was chairman of Commerce State Justice Appropriation, and I was working on Graham Rudman and the Reagan budget, and In my capacity as a subcommittee chairman, I oversaw a bunch of agencies, including the census. And it struck me that the numbers I was dealing with in the budget seemed very different than the numbers the Census Bureau was putting out in terms of household income. Mm -hmm. Household income is a building block of all of our statistical measures of well-being from poverty to income inequality. And so I started looking at it and then a seat opened on the finance committee and I took off and left to go to the finance committee. But I came back to it in 2017 when I happened to look at the Census Bureau puts out once a year what household income is and they break it out into five different quintiles, the bottom mm-hmm. 20% up to the top 20%. Sure. And also at roughly the same time, the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out consumption by quintiles. And in 2017, the income level, average income level, the bottom 20% of earners was $13,000. And they were consuming $26,000 worth of goods and services. And the second quintile was consuming 11% more than its income. And the top quintile was consuming only about half of its income. 
even though there was no evidence that such thrift levels existed anywhere. So that's sure. when I started working with Eklund to figure out what in the hell is going on here. And in that process, we discovered John Early. Eklund's a prominent scholar um, uh, who stayed in academics when I left to go to government. Uh, John Early was is a mathematical statistician uh, who was twice assistant commissioner of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So mm-hmm. in any case, uh, we went back and figured out that in, in 1947, when the census set up its procedure to estimate household income, that almost all payments were made in cash or cash equivalent. And so for simplicity purposes, they just counted cash payments. And uh, that produced about a 95% accurate picture. But in 1967, when the war on poverty ramped up, almost all of those benefits were paid in kind. You got a debit card that was charged with food stamps. Uh, You ran up Medicaid bills, the government paid them. You got housing subsidies, the government paid over a hundred federal programs. That's when the census made an extraordinary set of decisions in deciding not to count the very payments that we had put in place to deal with poverty, including food stamps. And remember that we define poverty in America as a multiple of the amount that it costs for a nutritionally balanced diet. So, Poverty, a poverty number based on consumption of food didn't count food stamps as being a benefit in dealing with poverty. So anyway, and also we found the census does not take into account taxes, uh, which means it doesn't count uh, refundable tax credits where you get a check from the Treasury. In total, the census doesn't count two-thirds of all transfer payments as income, It doesn't take taxes into account. So about 40% of the economy of the United States is not counted in the census measure of household income. So the census tells you the top 20% make 16.7 times as much as the bottom 20%. But we show using government data that if you count all transfer payments as income gain, and all taxes paid as income lost, the ratio of the top 20% the bottom is not 16.7 to one, but four to one. We also sure. show that the poverty rate is not 12.4%, but about 2.5%. And then some other blockbusters are, you know, the Economist magazine has said income inequality is high in the West and rising. Senator Sanders has told us that it's obscene, un-American, and unsustainable. Well, in fact, we show that when you count all transfer payments and taxes, that income inequality is actually a little less today than it was in 1947. Now, we show a lot of other things in the book as well, but that's the core of the findings of the book. So one of the parallels for historical eras you draw early in the book is you talk about 
uh, Victorian England, which was obviously the explosion of the Industrial Revolution and, and really kind of the you know what I would consider modern business. You know, to quote Dickens, uh, he said it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. How are the circumstances of then a lot like today where you see a lot of wealth and at the same time we know that there are people that aren't as good off, but the question is, is this a good thing? Well, first of all, what Dickens thought he saw was not true. Okay. You, you got to realize that poor people in rural England were across the creek, off the main road, away from the city, and even a mud hut where you're sharing it with your farm animals uh, from the veranda of a manor house that's across the creek from you looks quaint. Uh, Rich people had never seen poor people up close and personal except when they were cleaned up to come to work. When the Industrial Revolution came, people chose to move to the cities because they sought a better life. And they were all too visible then. And you've got to realize that the established parliament and the landowners were losers from the Industrial Revolution because it pulled labor into the cities. Mm-hmm. And um, the bottom line was, even though Dickens could not understand why Scrooge, for example, in the Christmas Carol, how his wealth did any good given he didn't spend it, well, that wealth it was going to fund the Industrial Revolution in Great Britain. Sure. So the bottom line is that from in the Victorian era, from 1830 to 1900, it, the economy grew faster, wages grew faster, uh, the more uh, the uh, lifespan grew faster. Uh, literacy grew faster than at any other time in the history of the world. And in America, despite all of you pick up any textbook in America, and it tells you that in our gilded age, the rich got richer, the poor got poorer. Well, the reality is everybody got richer. Now, there yep. were 4,500 millionaires uh, in 1890. But 66 million people had the fastest growth in their living standard that any people on the face of the earth had ever achieved. And the writers of the era were so preoccupied by the 4,500 millionaires that they totally turned a blind eye toward the 66 million workers. So the truth is, The rich got richer, the poor got richer, and everybody got richer. To go back to the Industrial Revolution, you mentioned, though, that because a lot of what your book's trying to address is how do we set up a great environment and the right incentives for people to succeed in their own choices, right? What they want to do in their life, right? In other words, we can't force them to do anything, and we we don't want to set up a structure that requires them to do anything. We want to give them the situation for them to succeed. So in the case of... Victorian England, there was a major change in terms of the regulation around businesses. Can you explain how royal charters worked and when they went away, what that allowed for? 
Well, royal charters basically were a system whereby the crown made money by granting charters to people who wanted to engage in business activity. That corrupt system was discredited by the South Sea bubble, where investors just lost huge amounts of money. And the parliament set up a system that over 150 years evolved into anybody could get a corporate charter that could put up the money. Sure. There were two major changes that made all this possible. The Enlightenment, which basically established the principles you had the right to worship God your own way. You had the right to your own opinion. And you own your label, labor and the fruits of your thrift. You got to remember in the Middle Ages, you owed theity to the, the, the crown, the church, the guild, the community. And these had become leeching powers that leached away people's incentive to work and save. Sure. But with the enlightenment, people came to own their own labor and own capital. Uh, and it changed everything. And then the Industrial Revolution, that unleashing of effort and capital and entrepreneurship and energy uh, created the Industrial Revolution, which changed the world, and those changes have never stopped. Correct. So one other thing you mentioned during that time was you talked about how the Black Death reduced the labor supply at the same time. You know, which obviously produced higher incomes from less available labor. I think a lot about the post-pandemic world that we sit in, where people have left the labor force. You talk a lot about some of the incentives that caused them to do that. But also it's been noted that, for example, you know, baby boomers pretty much retired during the pandemic at some point. Many left the workforce for, I'll call it finality, that they're not coming back. Do you see any of those similar labor supply reductions, you know, being a symptom that we're seeing right now, even outside of what we'll debate in the policy side tied to what's happened post pandemic? Well, what I was saying about the Black Death was that for the thousand years prior to uh, the Industrial Revolution, that mm -hmm. there was no significant economic growth. Sure. And that wages pretty much were flat. In fact, there have been a lot of studies of this. And that they would spike occasionally because of a reduction in supply like the Black Death. But then population grew and wages fell. That the beginning of a rise in real earning power for ordinary people occurred mm -hmm. in the Industrial Revolution in Great Britain and then spilled into the United States, and now it's gone all over the world. The, sure. the, the important point uh, about labor force participation rate in America today is that in 1967, when the war on poverty ramped up, the average family in the bottom 20% of income earners was receiving $9,700 worth of payments from the government. Mm -hmm. By 2017, 50 years later, they were receiving $45,400 
and the labor force participation rate for the bottom 20% of earners had fallen from 67% to 36%. Sure. And the reason it fell is the rewards for working, given that you could get as much from government by not working as you got from working, uh, were so small that the amazing thing is that 36% still work. And during the pandemic, remember that these benefits were being paid to people that were making as much as $150,000 a year. Crazy. And so uh, uh, many of them just decided, well, I won't go back to work. Now, it's beginning to change somewhat as those programs expire. Uh, But clearly, we have uh, had a dramatic decline in labor force participation rate as the amount of subsidies the government provides through transfer payments have grown. If you pay people not to work, you can't be shocked that they don't. Uh, agree. And and I think a lot, uh, uh, anecdotally, when you drive around, you know, places like Texas, places like Arizona, any, any you know, business that needs low-skilled wages or unskilled wages, uh, you know, working there, you see now hiring signs everywhere. I mean, it's hard to find a business that's not hiring, to be downright honest. And yet, they go unmet <laughs> or someone's there for a while and then doesn't stay because either they find a better job or to your point, they recognize that, you know, this isn't as good. And so, you know, I, I want a question I want to ask you kind of from a bigger picture perspective, because you mentioned Senator Sanders earlier. Why, you know, I think a lot of the framing to think about, you know, what incentives do we want? I think a lot of the framing comes down to really two views. Some people in American society look at uh, the prosperity uh, available to all as a zero-sum game. In other words, if I succeed, Senator Graham, if I succeed, you lose, okay? Versus I look at capitalism and economics and, and to your point, you know, what we've benefited from the enlightenment and our ability to use our human creativity, it's more like a game of golf, it's me versus me. That's what decides whether I succeed or not. It's me. And that's it. I would maybe throw in God's provision and blessing as the only thing that really helps me ultimately. But I point it out because your success has really nothing to do with mine. Do you agree that that's... That, 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 yeah, is that exactly really where right. the debate Look, is? Let, let's go. Let me just give you a very brief history. Plato viewed wealth and income is zero-sum game because you had a city-state. Wealth was almost totally based on land ownership, and it was a relative zero-sum game. All collectivists since the time of Plato implicitly assume that the world is zero-sum game. Uh, You take Thomas Piketty in his book, Capital in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. He never uses the term earns or creates to talk about the income that high income people get. He talks about them taking income, demanding income, seizing income, but never earning income. Well, look, 
Uh, I don't own an electric car. I don't expect I ever will. Uh, but Elon Musk uh, has never taken anything from anybody. Correct. He's rich as he can be, but he created every penny of it. And I'm no poor because of it. Uh, how does Bill Gates being rich make me poorer? I'm richer. I use his products. Um, uh, my pension fund owns part of his company. He owns only 7% of Microsoft. Pension funds, uh, 401ks, IRAs, annuities own about 70% of Microsoft. Uh, he didn't get to the top of the mountain alone. He took the rest of us with him. So if you want to be envious, you can always find a reason to, but please understand this. When people, when, and, and let me say, I admire Senator Sanders because he believes what he says. Sure. Uh, he's wrong. The facts don't bear him out, but he's a sincere member. And I've always admired that about him. But the bottom line basically is that when you're talking about billionaires and if billionaires paid more, we could have all these things. If you took every penny of income from every bill, every person in America who is in the Forbes 400 that the government doesn't already take, we couldn't have funded a week of federal, state, and local spending in 2020. Okay, the problem with rich people is there are too few of them. So this idea that, A, they don't pay their fair share of taxes, which is preposterous and verifiably false, and B, that we could somehow have all this stuff if they only gave us their money, uh, is uh, just totally false and made up. Well, so let's let's go to you talk about the U.S. Census Bureau to your point and how they laid out what they did in 1947 to use, you know, cash payments. OK, well, you know, and you started t that kind of begats in your writing about the federal transfers and why it, it, we really look at the bottom income quintile or the bottom two income quintiles poorly based on that. But I, I thought a lot about, you know, on the other side of that chart that you show where, you know, federal tax is being taken away. I, as an American citizen, am legally obligated to pay my federal, state, and local taxes. I cannot get around those. And to your point, there's nothing discretionary about that. I can't say, well, you know what? I'm not going to pay you this year like I didn't want to buy a car this year. That, that, you know, so therefore, I have no say over the money. I am liable. It is held as a liability until tax day arrives, ultimately. And so I... I I was kind of shocked that people don't look at income that's already has a call on it. They're treating it as though the rich have that money to play around with and the poor don't. Is, is that another way of looking at that? Yeah, well, and look, um, uh, people that are making over a million dollars a year are paying about 41% of their total income in taxes. Okay. Um, the... Um, the idea, the uh, tax system is, is uh, we have the most progressive tax system in the world. Mm -hmm. um, far more progressive than Germany, France, or Sweden. And tax rates rise uh, up until the income level of about $30 million 
And then for a very small number of people who give away vast amounts of money and who earn mostly through capital gains, it dips into the high 30s. Uh, but this idea that rich people don't pay their fair share of taxes is false. And if you look closely uh, at, um, for example, ProPublica, uh, that's had that stolen tax data and put out the thing about how Warren Buffett didn't pay much taxes. If you look at what they write, it's clear that it, or at least it looks as if they took what uh, Warren Buffett actually paid in taxes, but they didn't take his taxable income. They made up an income based on what that income would be if he sold every asset he owned every year and paid taxes on the gain. Sure, sure. Okay, and the same thing is true of Sayes, who's done all this work with Piketty. If you look at their tax data, what they do is they don't, when you look at high income people, they're not talking about taxes on their income. They're talking about what their taxes would be if they sold all their assets every year. Well, nobody taxes on that basis. What even people, uh, you know, ordinary people would have massive taxes if they sold their house, cashed out of their retirement, sold all the assets they owned, and paid the taxes on it in, in one given year, they would pay extraordinary taxes. But no, sure. no country in the world taxes that way. When I thought a really wonderful point, a wonderful point in your book, Senator Graham, is you talked a lot about who sits in those income quintiles across the five. And it's actually a fairly mean reverting system. Uh, for example, um, can you teach our listeners how, let's use me, I, in my lifetime, am likely to be in the lowest income quintile at some point. And by God's grace, I could end up in the highest quintile at some point. Can you explain how these quintiles don't really tell us much about what's going on in America? Well, they tell us what's going on at the instant the photograph is taken. Sure. But, uh, you know, you could, you could be in the bottom quintile while you're getting an MBA at Columbia in finance. Sure. Uh, and you could be in the top quintile by the time that you have started your own hedge fund. And you're the same person, of course. Uh, and look, the mo level of mobility in America is very large. A Pew study looked at what percentage of children that were born and grew up in the bottom quintile uh, ended up making more money than their parents in real living standards. 93%. 64% make so much more that they move up into a higher quintile, including a not insignificant number that go all the way to the top. So look, there's no denying it. If you can be born rich, brilliant and um, uh, beautiful, do it. 
I mean, there are big advantages to all three of them, but the point is you can be none of them and still succeed in America. Sure. And people do every day. Uh, but so, the welfare system, as it is now structured, has basically delinked the bottom part of the income distribution from the economy. And the economy is where most people find success. Sure. So they don't ever get on the escalator that takes them up, and then they can rise faster if they're climbing. So, and so, that's the downside. I never, we never debated poverty in my 25 years in government that I didn't start to debate by saying the great tragedy of our welfare system is that we've never found a way to help people help themselves. Uh, and in trying to help them, uh, we have destroyed their incentive to help themselves. Yeah, let, let me, because uh, I, I think you, you comment in the book, if I remember from memory, that a middle-class income in America would be a household with about fifty dollars to $90,000 of income. That would be considered middle-class. Um, and to your point, when you adjust for federal transfer payments, the lowest-income quintile makes almost a middle-income when you count all the benefits and government largesse they receive. So I guess my question is, do we really have a low-income quintile in America? Uh, yeah, it's about 2.5% of the population. Okay. And there are people that because of mental or physical disability or because of drug addiction can't take care of themselves and the people they're supposed to take care of and that basically have fallen through the cracks in the system. Yeah. The, we show in the book that the, the distribution of income in America really flattens out at the bottom and that 60% of Americans basically have very similar incomes. And if you adjust for the number of people in households, it gets even flatter where you've got uh, people that live in the same neighborhood that have basically the same or similar resources. And you've got one household where both adults are working and another household where nobody's breaking a sweat. And needless to say, there's resentment about it. Yeah. Uh, and it's justifiable resentment. Well, so beyond beyond the federal transfer payments that you you comment and write a lot about in the book, like you know, just to name a couple, just so our audience has a feel for what we mean by federal transfer payments, food stamps would fall into that category, Medicare, Medicaid, HUD, the housing and urban development programs, the earned income tax credits, which are effectively negative tax liabilities. So another part, you know, there's also private assistance, right? With their charitable endeavors all across this country, you know, seeking to improve and benefit the lives of their communities. Um, you point out that Americans donated 1.44% of the GDP in aggregate uh, to charity. I was kind of appalled at this number, to be honest, Senator Graham, because, you know, where I come from, 10% the floor. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of legacy that I live in, right? So I say that because I was shocked. I mean, I was utterly astonished to find out that that is the highest giving of any country in the world. According to your oh, exactly. By far, by far, we, America 
God far outstrips any other country in the world in charitable giving. And 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 this and mo- uh, most of that giving helped poor people. Yeah. So so I thought you know to your point. I mean. I, the, the really, I, I think it's incredible because you, you point out the imbalances. There are imbalances. Those are creating perverse problems. But, I mean, the other thing that your data does a great job of telling is what an incredible country this is. And you, you, I mean, just to put some, what, 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 you put some numbers on this. I mean, um, you point out that these charity transfers uh, are obviously not counted in the federal transfer payment number uh, to adjust for incomes, but they represent another three thousand three hundred thirteen dollars per household. I, I, you know, I would, I would say we're throwing more resources at poverty than any nation in the world. Is that a fair way of looking at it? Uh, other than France, we're second in terms okay. of the percentage of our GDP that is redistributed. Now. Poor people in America are much better off than poor people in France okay. because our whole society is richer. The Pew Foundation did a study where they define low income or poverty as two-thirds of the, the uh, mean, the, the median income. And by that definition... Since the median income in America is so much higher than in France and Germany, when you apply our standards, uh, a huge uh, percentage of their population, uh, a larger percentage, is poor than in our country. Mm -hmm. So if you don't want to be poor anywhere, but if you want to be poor anywhere, you want to be poor in America. Now, again... There are people living on the streets in Austin and in San Francisco. And the left loves these little examples. There's somebody living on the street in San Francisco and Warren Buffett is rich. But the reality is that our welfare system is not reaching that person on the street in San Francisco because no matter how much we spend on food stamps or refundable tax credits, it's not getting to them. What we need to be doing instead of spending 40, sending $45,400 to every uh, household in the bottom 20% on average, is we need to go out and ask that lady or that person sleeping on the street in San Francisco, what is their problem? and try to help them solve it. Um, I agree. Simply throwing more money at it doesn't do it. And look, my hostility is toward the system, not toward the people. Sure. Um, Sure. There are are poor people every day who succeed in America, and God bless them. So uh, you're touching at something, uh, you know, just so you know, Senator Graham, uh, we moved our company from Seattle, Washington, back in the middle of 2020. We had we had worked on the uh, work to do that prior to the pandemic, you know, coming about, and we continued with our plan. And I look at my own hometown, Seattle, Washington, downtown Seattle, uh, has been completely uh, ruined by the phenomena you just mentioned. And and um, it's a really interesting, like to your point, how do we want to help our fellow man and woman um, in those cities? You know, using Austin, like you use an example. They'll say, "Well, this is a ho- this is a housing issue," and 
the iron the irony is is no because you get into some really interesting data from studies that have been done i think you reference and I, I was trying to pull this out of my notes as we talk about it but you reference studies done on say food stamps for example right where people had you know uh, you know they they i think it was the us uh, da had gone in and done studies looking over a decade where they asked people that were on food stamps how they felt about their food situation. And I, I think you talked about how the food stamps didn't change their feelings. Yeah, the point I made was we see these things in the paper and people get very upset about them. And if they were true, there'd be reason to be upset. 40 million people in America are hungry during the pandemic when we just had an explosion in food stamps. You had advocacy groups putting that out. Well, where did it come from? Well, where it came from was the U.S. Department of Agriculture does a survey that asks, in any one day in the year, did you ever have a concern that you might not have enough money to eat? And if somebody says yes to that questionnaire, everybody in their household is um, defined as having uh, food insecurity. And then these advocacy groups take that and say that many people were hungry. Uh, uh, a Harvard University group uh, uh, related to their medical school did a study where they looked at that questionnaire immediately following an expansion in food stamps and basically concluded that the people that said they felt insecure before they got more food stamps felt insecure after they got food stamps. Uh, the point being that you're talking about what somebody feels, not what their stomach feels. And that's a very important distinction. Sure. Well, and to pivot, because you, you have a great FDR quote in here that I have to read. Um, he said this in 1935, and I'm quoting from your book, to dole out relief in this way is to administer a narcotic, a subtle destroyer of the human spirit. It is inimical to the dictates of sound policy. It is a violation of the traditions of America. Work must be found for able-bodied but destitute workers. The federal government must and shall quit this business of relief, end quote. It, it, even someone that was considered to be, you know, a provider of government largesse in, in some circles, FDR, um, he would have looked at, at, at this largesse as rot, wouldn't he have? Well, look, he would have, ne he would have been not the least bit surprised by the results of the war on poverty. You pay people $45,400 in benefits, a uh, household, and uh, <clears throat> the average poverty household's got 1.7 people in it. And uh, if they've got loans, if they don't have any real production skills, uh, many of them are going to decide not to work. Sure. And they're never going to discover the ability they have. 
Uh, and then you add to that the failure, failing of inner city schools. You know, I'm a firm believer, based on my own life experience, that there's extraordinary ability in ordinary people. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of talent in these inner city schools that is never discovered and that does not serve them and doesn't serve the country. Sure. So God worked for six days and then rested a seventh. Based on that, Senator Graham, I, I, I think a two-day weekend is a lot, um, especially, uh, you know, but if you're a parent, you figure out that you don't really get a, a full two days uh, on weekends. So I, I, let's pivot a little bit. Can you talk about how much better it is to be a high school graduate today than a college graduate would have been in 1967? Yeah, 50 years later, the economy has grown so much that a high school graduate today makes roughly the same amount a college graduate made 50 years ago. We don't take into account, we, people don't pay attention to this. Now, I'm old, but I go back to the little town I grew up in. And I look at the houses, my paper route, I had 105 newspapers. And I threw the papers in the richest part of Columbus, Georgia, where I grew up. My dad was a sergeant in the Army. I was born at Fort Benning. And uh, I go back today and look at the houses and what 50 years ago, well, now 60 years ago, were the houses of the richest people in town, and most of them roughly looked like middle-income American houses today, except they're mm-hmm. older. We do not take into account how well off we are. Uh, the gal who runs my office just bought her first house, and oh, it couldn't. The timing couldn't have been worse, but she's got two little children living in a small apartment. But anyway. So she bought this house, and uh, I was talking to her about the economics of it. And I said to her, you will, have you stopped to think that this house you're buying is a nicer house than your parents ever lived in, and a nicer house than your husband's parents ever lived in? And it's the first house. You know, people say to me all the time, on college campuses especially, why is it that people have so much trouble making ends meet if we're so rich? Mm. Well, because the ends keep growing. (laughs) That's why we have trouble making ends meet. Ends keep growing. I have trouble making ends meet. And I haven't been poor in a hell of a long time because we keep, the ends keep growing. We keep wanting yeah. more. We keep expecting more. Uh, you know, I look back at the house, one of the houses I grew up in. Uh, you had to go on the back porch to go to the bathroom. It had four coal burning fireplaces. We only burned one. Uh, uh, water would freeze on a table by the bed at night in the winter. Hell, nobody lives in a house like that today. I exactly. can't sleep if I'm cold. I mean, it's we're, we just don't realize the changes that occur uh, 
uh, and I talk to people, and, and they don't they forget what it was like. Sure. I had a guy What's trying to tell me that his son uh, was paying more for his new house uh, than his grandparents had paid. And I said, well, first of all, if you adjusted and that it's no nicer, he says. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, if you adjusted for inflation and you looked at quality, I know your grandparents didn't have air conditioning and I know your son does. I know your grandparents didn't have central heat or insulated house. Your son does. I mean, again, we just lose perspective. We're so blessed because the country's so productive and it's so productive because it's, it's incentivized people to do incentivized ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Uh, agree. So, so, um, I don't, uh, there's another book Senator Graham. I don't know if you've come across, it's out there called super abundance. Um, but it talks about, if you look at time prices, how much cheaper every product in our life to your point has got in the, the, the in amount of time it takes the average worker. And so that that's caused the goods to get better and better in the houses. But I also, I just think, you know, I, I think a lot of what your book addresses is let's not look at incomes. Let's look at consumption to understand how good America is. And to your point, I mean, the average size of a house would make anyone in the 1960s cry at how poor they lived, even in the middle or upper classes. Their houses were small. Their houses weren't, Nice. 42%, 42% of people who are classified as poor in America own their own home. Mm. It so has on average three bedrooms, one and a half baths, a, a carport, and a patio. 88% of those houses have air conditioning. Um, we, I, and, you know, some of these houses may look run down on the outside, but when you compare them to what people lived in 50 years ago, 50 years ago, a significant number of poor houses did not have indoor plumbing. Mm. Interesting. Uh, I mean, we don't, you just don't realize how much the world has changed. And all of the, none of this progress came from government. Uh, you know, 80% of the people in the world were in abject poverty 50 years ago. And now that's declined to almost, uh, to about 10% because of the growth in world trade and because of the growth of market-based economic systems. Sure. None of that was produced by government's good intention. It was all produced by people working to advance themselves and their families. So I, I would think a lot about this, Senator Graham. So let's just use let's use a practical product. So I have an iPhone. I assume you have an iPhone as well. Think of what the net worth or income someone would have had to have in 1970 to have a product that does as much as that does for us today. I mean, I think I remember as a kid, you used to, you used to have to do like your AAA maps, right? That's what you used to have to travel around when we were kids. You know, we'd have our AAA maps out and, you know, you, your parent might call ahead to the, to the hotel or motel that you're going to go on in your road trip. And, you know, you didn't know what this place looked like. You just knew what AAA told you. I mean, 
that, that those just seem like utter waste of time and a, not even a billionaire if if there was a billionaire in 1970 that could have attempted it not even the billionaire in 1970 has the technology available to them like we do today on to your point on a on uh, a low income with federal transfer payments included what we get is miraculous yeah well look first of all when the the uh, smartphone came on the market, it didn't even come into the consumer price index for 15 years. Mm. It had declined in price by 75% before it was ever taken into account in terms of affecting our well-being and measure of its cost. Uh, it improved dramatically. Um, We've got, I've got on my iPhone, I, I can find out what the weather is like anywhere in the world and how to get there and what yep. to do when I'm there. I've mm-hmm. got more information in the local library. And the relevant question is not what a, a billionaire could add. If it came right down to it, what would you pay to not have to give up your iPhone? Okay, I've thought about that. I had an old iPhone, <laughs> the company I worked for. The company I worked for took it away from me because it was increasingly incompatible with their system. And uh, I got a brand new one now. I have trouble figuring out how the hell it works. But the point is, I would give a tremendous amount of money. I couldn't live as I live without this iPhone. Sure. I couldn't do the work I do without this iPhone. It's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars to me. Sure. Um, I, you know, very few things other than my sainted wife that I depend on more than this iPhone. And again, uh, nowhere in our measure of well-being is that fully or even significantly taken into account. So again, um, we made great progress, but we could make so much more. I remember I was the author of the Reagan program in the house. And so I had the wonderful opportunity as a, a congressman who had been in Congress for only three years to get to work with, on a very close basis, with President Reagan. And, uh, you know, uh, it was just wonderful because I'd say once our program went into effect, I'd show him the numbers of what happened to the number of disabled Americans. And it was just falling like a rock. And I would say to him, people are getting up out of wheelchairs and going to work. Well, it was (laughs) somewhat of an overstatement. But uh, he would say to me, you know, can you imagine if we really had good government, what we could have? Mm. And I often ask that question to myself today. Um, you know, if we, if we had better policies and we had all of our people working and we were discovering all of our talent uh, and, and we were incentivizing it, um, you know, how many Warren Buffets are out there in some inner city school 
that just never have their talents discovered. Sure. Well, let's pivot to that because I, I think you, I think you did a really interesting job in the section. You had a chapter on the super rich. Um, can you just teach our our listeners, you know, what kind of professions make up the top three or four percent of of incomes in America? Well, they're heavily involved in business and finance. Uh, some of them are in entertaining, uh, but they're people who excel at what they do, and the market is willing to pay them very large amounts of money to do it. And so we show that data um, in the in the book. But the the most important thing we do in that chapter, in my opinion, is basically point out that what is contributed to the world as people become super rich. Mm. Uh, Warren Buffett is often criticized for not paying taxes because he doesn't pay himself income. Sure because he doesn't sell anything. And so you might say, well, what, what good does he get out of all that wealth? Well, the, the right question is, if he's not getting good out of it, who is? Who benefits from all that investment he makes? Sure. Uh, we do. The economy does. The economy is more efficient because he's the greatest investor in the world. The huge amounts of capital he's plowed back into developing new businesses, create new jobs. When he dies, the government will take 40% of what he's got, and uh, they'll probably squander most of it. Uh, but even if they spend it as efficiently as government can spend it, they will never do as much good as he's done creating all that wealth. And well, even agree. If, if Bill Gates gives every penny he ever made away, he did more good making it than he'll do giving it away. That's the untold story that, you know, um, we ought to be saying to these people, thank you. I appreciate you made all this money. Now, I would rather I made it, yeah. But... I'm richer because you're richer. That's the point. And you're so right, uh, Cole, in that deep down in every collective argument for redistribution, they have thrown a switch where they've turned the view of the world's zero-sum world. That if Warren Buffett's rich, that means somebody else is poor. And he took it from somebody else. Well, Warren Buffett didn't take it from anybody. When a person graduates from MIT in electrical engineering and goes to work for $250,000 a year, they're not taking that $250,000 from anybody else. They're creating it. And we're all richer for it. They'll invent something and I'll be using it in a couple of years. So on, it's funny. So I, um, as a as a younger man, uh, I think I was, if I remember correctly, I think I was in college at the time, Senator Graham. I actually had a really fun opportunity. My dad was a member of 
uh, the number four rotary in Seattle, which was at that time the largest rotary in the world. And Bill Gates Sr., uh, who obviously is of K&L Gates fame, was a lawyer, came to speak because he was out advocating for the estate tax at that time. And he was explaining how it's really good for America. This is, you know, this would be, call it early 2000s. And interestingly, he used Warren Buffett as his example. And he got done making his presentation there at Rotary. And, you know, it's a big group, but my dad raises his hand and asked the question. He said, you know, you're advocating that we should be willing to pay these estate taxes. But then he pointed out that Warren Buffett didn't plan to do anything other than give all the money away, which means he wouldn't pay any estate tax. And so I, I thought a lot about that because, again, you know, the, the, the incentive is if you do keep the money and pass it on to your heirs, you do get taxed. And I also think about, um, you know, what kind of incentive structures a tax like that could create. So you talk a lot in your book about the disincentive to work and the incentives that we've created to cause people to do that. But I also think about it for, let's say you're the wealthy people. To your point, we want a lot of wealthy people here. Um, they, they pay their taxes. They tend to not have, you know, uh, crime issues, things of that nature. They do all these great things outside of it. But, but, but our, currently our, our structure in America is set up to where above $23 million exclusions, to your point, you're going to pay a, a marginal rate on your estate over 40%. Um, if, if, if I woke up tomorrow and said, hey, I could get a passport from somewhere else in the world, and I've decided to go post up somewhere in the Caribbean for the rest of my life, I could go pay capital gains rates at 25% on my assets and plausibly never pay taxes again in the jurisdiction I go to. I isn't it a perverse incentive to cause an American citizen that's wealthy to look at the tax rates and compare them later in life like that? Well, and also, it, people don't take risks because of rewards or muted because of taxes. And with Agreed. older people, a big problem I have is that I'm accumulated. You know, I'm a saver, accumulator. I still work. I lie and tell people that I work because I have a young wife and she wants money and she put me in a cheap nursing home. But actually, I have an old wife who would very much like me to quit working, but I don't quit working because I like working. I like accumulating. I like yeah. making money. We're going to never spend it. Uh, but I would not, I hold a lot of assets that I can't sell because when I die, I get a step up in basis before I pay the death tax. Yep. Or my heirs pay the death tax. And if I sold assets now and then died tomorrow, they would end up paying both the capital gains tax and the death tax. So in my case, it hardly changes the economy. But nevertheless, I've tried to get Congress to let people, when they turn 80 years old, have a one-time chance to take their step up in basis then rather than at death and rationalize their asset holdings. It would make the government money, uh, but I've had not had any luck getting it done. Yeah, and I've had ideas on that too, Senator Graham, not that anybody cared, but I've also thought, why do we give such 
uh, preferential treatment when people give their assets like Warren to a foundation versus their kids? Shouldn't we be a lot more, you know, no matter what, it's going to get spent in the economy, to your point, as long as it doesn't go to the government. Um, and so should we be as choosy over where the money goes to get a tax-free transfer or should we just be a lot more excited that it doesn't go to the government? But let me let me pivot a little because I you had a well, couple let me, of, I, well, I've got to tell a story. I got yeah. to tell a quick story. Yeah. Okay, uh, exactly your point. We're writing the Reagan tax cut, okay? And uh, the Democrats are putting all every every giveaway they can into their alternative to try to keep the Reagan tax cut from passing, okay? Sure. And so we're at a meeting at the White House, and so a friend of mine who uh, was a congressman in Texas has this amendment that he has been trying to get adopted where if you give your business to the to your employees, you can do it tax-exempt. Yeah. And so I've been out of the college classroom all of three years. And so I say, now, wait a damn minute here. If you give your, your uh, business away, you cannot pay taxes on it. But if you give it to your grandchildren, the people you build it for, you're going to have to pay taxes. What the hell kind of policy is that? <laughs> and so I got up and I walked out in the hallway and walked around a minute to try to gain my composure. And so when I came back in, when the meeting was over, Jim Baker, um, who was the best staff guy I ever worked with, who was then chief of staff, um, said, now what were you saying about uh, indexing for inflation? And so anyway, I don't know it for a fact, but I think because of me getting up and walking out of the room, he listened again to my argument that people were being killed by bracket creep during the nine years where the inflation rate had been 9.2% and that we ought to index the tax brackets, and we did. So some good came out of that problem. <laughs> That's awesome. So you had you had the data point here that I just, Senator Graham, I loved this. This was just so awesome. I'm going to quote your book, and then I'll I'll, I'll kind of I'll tease you around while I'm bringing this up. So when I visit New York, uh, Senator Graham, I tell people often there. I say, listen, I don't think you understand how Middle America works, because to be honest, I don't really think there's much of middle America in New York City. Well, then, as I got into your book, you, I'm going to quote, data from the current population survey shown that in 1967, the top quintile of households was overrepresented by the Northeast by 12.3%, and the bottom quintile was underrepresented by 12.5%, a clear skew toward higher income in the Northeast. But 50 years later, in 2017, the top quintile was overrepresented even more by 18.8%, but the bottom quintile had shifted from being significantly underrepresented to being slightly overrepresented. This 60% in the middle of the income distribution was underrepresented in 2017, end quote. So when, when I read your book, I, I realized 
oh, I, no wonder they don't understand and understand things like housing for most of America. They don't even know most of America in the middle, to your point. No, that's right. Look, New York is full of rich people and poor people. It's interesting that demographic data we do in talking about what's happened in the last 50 years to the races uh, and on a regional basis is very interesting stuff. Another amazing thing about this book is the progress of Asians. Uh, extraordinary. Many of them came to the country recently. Many of them hardly spoke English when they got here. And with hard work and family support and good values, uh, they have achieved uh, a differential uh, with white Americans that's astonishing. Mm. It just goes to show you, if you work, America works for you. So the last thing I'd love to touch on, because you touch at this early in the book, you talk about how education is important for income. It's an important component, though you note it is not an end-all component because you can find super rich people that obviously don't have anything more than a high school education. But just so you know, Senator Graham, my kids attend a government-funded charter school here in Phoenix, Arizona. It's part of the Great Heart System that's also in Texas and Louisiana beyond our state. Um, it's a classical education that I wouldn't be able to find among any other private schools if, they're, if one of them did produce it in the area. We have here ESA vouchers, uh, which allow for a family to elect to take a voucher of $7,000, and they go pick whatever private school they want, or they could go to a charter school, uh, or they could go to a public school, okay? And the public schools here cost us $15,000 a student. That ESA voucher only costs $7,000. So you talk a lot about the charter model. You talk a lot about school choice. I kind of feel very blessed to your point earlier. I mean, I live in a state where we're on the cutting edge of school choice and the ability for low income households to make decisions for their household to better their household. How do you see that evolving? In other words, do you look at Arizona as this is a model and this is going to replicate? Because you note also some of the success in places like New York with charter schools, for example. Well, the point we make in the conclusion of the book is that the two big drivers of income inequality are work effort and education. As my mama, who was a practical nurse, once told us she was nursing the richest guy in town. And so my brother asked her, well, how is he different than us? My mother said he works harder than we do, and he's got sharper tools. <laughs> and by sharper tools, she meant he was better educated. Okay, um, I don't know that school choice, charter schools, vouchers, I don't know they're the ultimate solution, but I do know they're the only things that statistically move the needle. There's no correlation between public funding of public education in general and quality. And there's no uh, correlation internationally between national funding for public education and achievement. Um, the only thing that has moved the needle in America in the right direction has been more freedom, more options, more choice. 
And it's something I feel very passionate about. Um, again, there's talent to be discovered out there. And um, for all kinds of reasons, moral and economic, we have an obligation to discover that talent. And school choice is working. We've got 11 states now that have opted to uh, have more school choice. It just failed in Texas now. I'm sure we'll find it in. But again, our problem here is the school system, especially in rural areas, is far and away the largest employer. It hires more electricians, more painters, more carpenters than anybody. And they realize that school choice is going to change their way of life. They don't want it changed. Mm. Choice and freedom will work, and they will prove to be so much better that ultimately, I believe, Americans will have more choice in education. It's strongly supported by blacks. Uh, in the inner cities that have experienced it, their politicians don't support it because they're afraid of the teachers union. But as I told a bunch of our state reps when I was calling, asking them to support school choice, I know you think that while 82% of Republican primary voters are for this, that next year they'll move on to something else, but the school system will never forget your vote. But as I told them, this issue is not going away. Yeah. Agreed. Careers are going to be broken on this system, on this uh, issue. And you're either going to get right on this issue or you're going to get on about your business. Correct. So it's a big deal. And I, I feel very strongly about it. And uh, when I was in the Senate, I was the only member of the Senate at the time that had ever had a child in public schools in the District of Columbia. Mm. And I was, it was an anomaly. We had the school right across the street from my house. We thought the boy was clever, and it didn't make any difference. And, you know, he's got to live in the world. But sure. in the third grade, when they had the union bumping rule, and he ended up with a new teacher in the middle of the third grade, we decided, what the hell? This, we're fighting a losing battle here. Yeah, because to your point, th there's there's no correlation between the quality and the cost. And I think the other place that that shows up beyond the education is you just point out the fact that there is no connection between, say, unemployment and federal transfer payments. In other words, we have the lowest unemployment of all time, and government largesse has never been bigger than it is right now, which makes no economic sense. No, that's right. Look, we're subsidizing... Uh, we have substituted, we've eliminated Walt, except for a very small group of people with special problems. But the price we paid for it is idleness and dependence. Mm. Was it a good deal? I don't think so. Let me make one pitch for you guys. Yeah. Okay. I don't need the money. So buying the book doesn't do what I want done. Sure. Reading the book does what I want done. The myth of American inequality. It is a, a concise book. I think it's pretty well written. 
Don't get put off by the numbers. If you're trying to convince people that everything they thought they knew was wrong, you got to provide some proof. Exactly. But it's easy to read. If you read it, you will realize that almost that many of the arguments that are being made against American capitalism are invalid. And you'll have the ammunition to defend them. And you'll realize that this country of ours is even greater than you think. You Google it and up it'll come and they'll have about four or five or six different people selling the book. Take the lowest price, buy it and read it. Well, Senator Graham, this has been just a treasure. I really appreciate your time today. You know, your book has reminded me that we live in a blessed society and that blessing is so large that some have forgot that it's a reward. It's not the process that gets us there, though. You know, I am, I am proud to be an American despite the imperfections we have, and it is the best system for human progress thus far in the history of the world. Our listeners should go out, get a copy of uh, Senator Graham's book, The Myth of American the Inequality. The Myth of American Equality. Yep. It, what a book. So if, for our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast with Senator Graham, go to Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to A Book With Legs. Give us a review. Tell others about the books and great authors like Senator Graham that we have the opportunity to understand and study the world through. For our tribe, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeadcap.com. That's podcast at smeadcap.com. You can also send your suggestions to us on Twitter. Our handle is at smeadcap. Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.